I would love to have you take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Genesis, chapter 12. We will find our way to 2 Corinthians a little later, but we're going to take a little bit of a journey this morning, and I'd love to have you do that with me. Typically, we find ourselves in one text and typically stay there, but this morning, not so much. A few moments ago, we sang one of my favorite Christmas songs. There are many that are my favorite Christmas songs. But O Come, O Come, Emmanuel has always uh, rung uh, close to my heart because it captures both the joy of a Savior coming and the angst in the human heart in living in a fallen and sin-cursed world. The longing that at various times in my life I cry out more loudly than others, come, 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 Jesus, come. This morning, we want to get ourselves started down the road of Advent, and I love the fact that we celebrate Advent. We do that in several ways, as you know, here at Sunset Bible Church, not only with the lighting of candles, but uh, in telling the story, as the scripture does. Back of your bulletin says a word about that. But also, uh, we are following, as you know, an original seven-year Advent teaching plan that ties in with our Christmas production. Some of you are newer here and haven't been a part of that, but every year our Christmas program is part of this seven-part series. And we preach then four sermons that tell the story that you'll see on stage during the Christmas production. So it's kind of a package deal. And it is my, my dream, really, that whether old or younger, that all of us at Sunset Bible Church along the way would be able to tell each of these seven stories. This is our second time through. Uh, We're in the middle, if you look at your study notes, a light in the darkness. That's this year, which means they're halfway through the seven-year progression. And in just telling the story again year after year, every seven years, you get a visit with one of these high points, one of these mountain peaks, if you will, that tell the story of redemption. I just think God's people should know, of course, the rest of the Bible, but these seven, I think, help make sense of all of of the Bible. So I I really love the fact that we get to do this together. Now, each, each of these stories has a different mood to it. Some are more upbeat, and some are a little more reflective. And this is one of those. A light in the darkness, as you can imagine, tells the story of God speaking in the dark, people in darkness, a season of darkness, and God's presence with them through the voices of the prophets. And we heard that reflected earlier as the texts were read. We'll see that today in a whole variety of ways. And so my comments today will fit into these two headings, God of the day and God of the night. And I want to visit some texts in each. God of the day, believing his promises in the light. And God of the night, knowing his presence in the dark. And I I hope that you will be encouraged in each of these places. I want to pray for us that God will help us this morning. We have a lot to do and uh, to consider. And so we'll need God's help with it, I know. But join me in this, please. Our Father, this morning we have the privilege of beginning this journey of Advent and to think about a specific time in the the story, the unfolding of your promise plan, the coming of Jesus. 
and a specific time when things were difficult and you, you, you didn't forget your people, you didn't abandon them, you didn't, you didn't just drop your plan to send a savior. You, 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 you were faithful to your promises and we're so thankful that you did that then and you are like that today. And I think of all those who are here, all of us, different places in our lives, some doing quite well right now, thank you, and others at various places, either a short time or a bigger time of difficulty or challenge or sadness. And our Father, we thank you for your presence in all of it. And it is our prayer that as we open the word of God together this morning, you'd meet us right where we're at and draw us closer to Christ because we've been here. So help us now in this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So bringing us all up to speed... Uh, with this seven-part series as part of my task. If you look at your study notes under that heading, God of the Day, Believing His Promises in the Light, what I want to do is very briefly, very briefly, visit three different texts that were the main focus of the last three years of Christmas programs. And believe me, when I say briefly visit, I really do mean briefly visit. A lot of details I'm going to skip. I just want to draw those to your mind if you're with us and invite those of you who are newer among us to maybe dig a little deeper in each of those categories, and you would do well. So we begin then in Genesis 12, as you've opened your Bibles. This is an amazing moment. Of course, it falls on the heels of the first 11 uh, chapters of the Bible, where God creates all that is out of nothing by his word. He speaks, and the worlds exist. You have the story of of Noah, of course, after the, the fall, but the story of Noah, the flood, and then, of course, right here in chapter 11, uh, the text right preceding where we're at, the beginning of the nations, the story of the nations, table of the nations. But then you have God's, God's focus begin to center on a specific family. Here in this text called Abram, of course, his name is later changed to Abraham as his wife Sarai, in this text, uh, later changed to Sarah. Older, no kids, and God speaks to them. And this is a text called the Abrahamic Covenant. This is like a lightning bolt out of nowhere. And God talks to, to Abraham, and he makes some very specific promises that, that find their way all the way through the text of the Bible. So I'm going to read Genesis 12, 1, 2, and 3, and we'll say just a couple things here. Uh, now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's an amazing promise. Now, I, I, on your study notes, you used the term promise plan. I'm leaning there on Dr. Walt Kaiser, who's an eminent Old Testament theologian, who uses that as kind of a, a theme to, to, as a center for the whole Bible. There are others who've used different themes and phrases and so on. That would be one that, that, that he would use, and I've followed his, his uh, understanding, I suppose, uh, pretty closely. The promise plan, you find the term promise all the way through the text of the Bible. You read it in the book of, a book of Acts as the church begins. God made promises to our fathers, remember? And it's looking all the way back here to Genesis 12, uh, 1, 2, and 3. And I'm saying here in your study notes, the promised plan of God was not an afterthought. God did not look at where things were out in the world and say, hey, you know what? I, I have an idea. 
Let's, let's do it this way. No, God knew from before time began the plan that he was going to unfold in the human race. He did. And we'll see more of that to come. Now, this specific uh, covenant promised Abraham has three parts. Okay? And they go like this. You can identify these in the verses I just read. Land, seed, or descendants, and blessing. Land, seed, blessing. Those are the three components of the Abrahamic covenant. Those are repeated, of course, a little later. Genesis 15, where we're told Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, shows up again and again and again, passed down through the patriarchs and into the, the pages of Scripture from here. The, the, the promised plan of God. Now, we're studying Galatians in our normal preaching series that we've now set aside for this season of Advent. And I'm hoping that some of you who were here will remember, as I have on your study notes, Galatians 3, 8. We were in chapter 4. We just looked at this not that many weeks ago, where the Apostle Paul, believe it or not, looks back thousands of years to this text. He, he draws upon it in Galatians 3, 8, and he says, God preached the gospel. And he uses the, the term, the, the Greek term that we use as gospel, uh, evangel. God preached the evangel before, beforehand to Abraham when he said this, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. The apostle Paul, in a sense, saying this, when God made this promise to Abraham, Abraham's hearing, you're going to be a blessing to the nations, which was true. And God is thinking, uh-huh, Messiah Jesus. Now, Abraham didn't understand the full exposure of that. He had no idea really all the details of the plan. But in the mind and heart of God, from the very beginning, God knew exactly what he was doing. And may I say, God knows exactly what he's doing today too. Okay, It was not an afterthought. The details of our lives, your life, they're not an afterthought with God. He's not making it up on the fly. You and I do a lot of that, don't we? Some of you are very spontaneous people. Hey, let's do God is not like that. He doesn't make up details of your life on the fly. Hey, I think this today. Never thought of that before. No, no. no God knows exactly what he's doing. He knows the details of, of your life. He knows the way you take, as Job would say. He knows the way that I take. When he's tried me, I'll come forth as gold. Indeed, God knows the way. He knows, he knows what's going on. It's not an afterthought. And Paul would say, uh, God preached the gospel. He calls chapter 12, verse 3, the gospel in Galatians 3. I love that. We spent Christmas time 2016 working this over, looking at all the details of Abraham, Isaac, coming of Isaac, and so on. Now, I want to shift to the next one. We've got to move along. I want to go to the book of Ruth. Okay? Joshua judges Ruth. If you travel with me, that would be good. A couple of details. I want to pick up at each one. God of the day, God of the night, believing his promises in the light. Now, God protected the promise. God protected his plan. As he made those promises, God guided them. I put here, sovereignly, sovereignly guiding even the daily choices of his people so that his plan was fulfilled. If you ever wonder about how a sovereign God works with the choices of people, the book of Ruth is an interesting study for you. And it's a must go there. Okay, so as the story unfolds, and again, I'm just a snapshot of it today, you find a lady by the name of Naomi introduced in chapter one as the story begins. Uh, she's the kind of the grandma figure here, uh, two sons, 
And uh, my goodness sakes, uh, her husband dies, her two sons die. She's got these two uh, daughters-in-law. One stays with her, that's Ruth, who of course you meet all the way through the story. Chapter 1 is very dark. We preached this, of course, a couple of years ago under his wings. But, but I, I draw your attention to chapter 2, uh, verse 3. I mean, you've got to see this. So we're told they, they come back to Bethlehem, the house of bread. Beth Lechem, of course, the house of bread. They come back to the place where, where God had blessed them before. Things are empty. Naomi says, have come back empty. But they come to the house of bread, Bethlehem. And Ruth is going to go out and glean in a field. So she gets up in the morning and, and she's got to go get some food. So practicing the normal pattern of gleaning, she's going out to pick up grain someplace. Uh, I don't imagine it was well studied, and she didn't have a little community map saying, eeny, meeny, miny, mo." She just went. She just went, okay? And it says in verse 3, she happened to come. She happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. And, of course, right here, the writer is hoping that the reader, it's kind of a wink, wink moment, meaning, hey, you see that? Ruth showed up at Boaz's field. Oh, completely by accident, was it? Absolutely not. God was guiding her cho- her free choices. God was guiding her free cho- She made a choice. She just happened, the writer said. She just happened to show up at the field of the person who was going to be her kinsman redeemer. Who'd have thought? Well, God was protecting his plan. God was guiding, making sure she didn't stop at Billy Bob's field down the road and the whole thing get hijacked. No, God knew exactly what he was doing, even as she made free choices. And indeed, they were. Now, you come over to chapter 3. I love this part of the story. Each part of, the, of Ruth is, 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 captures my heart in some way or another. Here's the moment where Boaz and Ruth are speaking. And in verse 9, she says, Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. All of this, of course, points to Jesus, our greater kinsman redeemer. You're a redeemer, she says. And Boaz answers back, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You've made this last kindness greater than the first in that you've not gone after young men because he was much older than her, as the story goes, whether rich or poor. Now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I'll do for you as you've asked. And then verse 12, it's true, I'm a redeemer. There's a redeemer closer, he said, but I'm gonna pursue this. And uh, he says, I will redeem you, verse 13. And, of course, that's the way the story plays out. At the end of the book, you find um, them giving birth to, uh, uh, to a son who will be the greater grandfather of David, great King David. Wow, God's protecting his promise. God's protecting his promise. So he makes the promise in the light. He protects his promise. I'm going to shift to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel, moving quickly. 2 Samuel. Chapter 7, which you'll recognize, of course, from last year, if you were with us, this is what we call the Davidic covenant, God's promises to David, the shepherd warrior king. So Abrahamic covenant, God's promises to him, God protecting his promises through the story of Ruth and others, and then God making amazing, I'm calling them gracious, they're grace-based promises to the shepherd warrior king David. Now, just a couple of those, if you let your eyes look at verses 12 to 16, 12 to 18 or so in 2 Samuel 7, you see God speaking through Nathan the prophet and making promises. David, I'm going to raise up your offspring after you. I'm going to establish a kingdom. I'll establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Your, your kingdom, verse 16, 
your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And David's listening to all this saying, can it be? How can there be a forever kingdom? Well, indeed, that's fulfilled in the greater son of David, Jesus Christ, to sit on the Davidic throne. Now, David gets it. He knows this is well beyond him. That's why in verse 18, he sits before the Lord and he says, who am I? Oh, Lord, what is my house that you would make promises like this to me? So last year, last year's subject, uh, the shepherd, warrior, king. Now, that fourth little bullet point, take a look at this, please, and get a hold of it. Wrap your arms around this, please. God guarded his promise plan down through the ages. It was not derailed by human sin or lack of faith, nor was it lost in the sands of time. God makes promises, and he keeps all of them. So human sin, people who didn't believe, people who dropped the ball, messed it up, and hundreds and hundreds of years. Listen, listen, God didn't make promises and forget them. It's not, that's not the way it works. God makes promises and he keeps them. And listen, for you, child of God, God has made promises to you. He will keep all of them, all of them, okay? All the way to the day that you stand in his presence, he will keep all of his promises to you, okay? So don't, don't, don't forget that. Please, God of the day. Now, by using that term again, God of the day, believing his promises in the light, I'm not suggesting that those periods of time were always easy or not filled with difficulty. They were. But I'm just talking about the clarity with which we see those promises of God. Now, looking to that next section, God of the night, knowing his presence in the dark, we're shifting here away from that section, looking at the promises I want to go first to Second Chronicles. There's one more Old Testament text, and then we'll move to Second Corinthians. But Second Chronicles 36, I, I say here on your study notes, then came the day that the lights went out. What that means is a, a day when the nation of Israel was taken into captivity. That's what I mean by the lights went out. And of course, I had to look up the day. If you're a native Northwest person, you will remember the billboard Uh, That was uh, purchased by two guys, April 16th, 1971, uh, during a downturn for Boeing when the economy was so difficult. And everybody living in the Northwest will remember the iconic billboard that says, will the last person leaving Seattle turn out the lights? And uh, it was intended to bring a smile to the faces of many, but it was making a social comment as well. Well, in 2 Chronicles 36, the lights are going out. And you see that in verse 15. Uh, of course, this is just a part of a much bigger text. But you read this. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy And then the paragraph that follows talks about the Babylonians, also called the Chaldeans, coming up and wreaking havoc on the nation of Israel, wiping out the glorious temple, cutting it apart. It's like they showed up with their hacksaws and took it apart, pulled the gold off of things and place of beauty and worship for the glory of God, taken apart, people killed, taken captive, the survivors. Off they went to Babylon 
for 70 years. Can you imagine? I call it the day the lights went out. You would have, if you were present at the time, many would have been killed. And if you, if you survived, uh, let's just say scarred for life, as you saw the devastation take place. So I call it the day the lights went out on purpose. But I say this, even in a darkness of their own making, God did not abandon his people, nor did he abandon his promise plan. Now, I want to talk about this darkness for a minute. Because in, in this case, as told here, the darkness that is in, enveloping the people of God was, well, caused by them. They were culpable, weren't they? As today, for many of us, there are elements of darkness, struggle, that we had something to do with. And next week, we're going to talk about that in particular, uh, when the darkness is our fault. I want to talk about that very directly. What do you do when you, when you look at the difficulty? I don't mean it's all your fault, but I mean, you know, some part of it was maybe you were stupid or did something wrong or said stuff. I don't know. Sometimes there are darknesses in our lives that we had something to do with it. And what do you do with that other than live the rest of your life in, in regret? Well, come next week because we want to talk about that. What do you do with regret? What do you do when the darkness is your fault? Now, I hasten to say for today's purposes, not all darkness in which we live is our fault, is it? Sometimes there are elements of darkness that we walk in due to the choices of others, things that are said or done, sometimes results of living in a fallen world. Sometimes there are sicknesses and death and and grief and all kinds of things that come our way because we live in a broken world, folks. Sometimes our seasons of darkness are short, shorter days, weeks. Sometimes those seasons of darkness last a very long time, months, and as some of you know, even years. There are types of darkness that last a while. Well, okay, so I have under this heading, then God of the night, knowing his presence in the dark. And I'd like to, to shift then to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, as you turn over the page there of your study notes, knowing God's presence in the dark. I mentioned that the top of that sheet, a statement there that God does not abandon us, his people, during seasons of night. And a reference from last week's text, we are his people and the sheep of his pasture, Psalm 95, indeed. 2 Corinthians 1, then, verses 3 through 11. It's not my intention to drain this text fully today. Our time is limited. I'm putting a lot in here to, to begin our series, a lot of material. But I want to spend a few moments with four elements of 2 Corinthians 1, talking about God's presence in the dark. So I want to read then 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 11. We read this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. 
For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we're comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. And of course, in that section, the hour is speaking of Paul and his associates, the apostles. That's, that's the hour part. They're suffering. And he says, you, the readers, the listeners, you're suffering with us. Uh, verse, verse 8 then. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, or brothers and sisters, appropriately translated here, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we'd received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. This is a really important text in our understanding of the dark, of suffering. This is a very important text. I am going to limit myself to just those four bullet points. In that first paragraph, verses 3 through 7, I mentioned that in our journey of faith, we face both suffering and comfort. And I, I think it's so interesting. Sometimes precisely at the same time, suffering and yet comfort. Darkness, yet the presence of God. Some of you know things about this because you have or are now in some season of difficulty or darkness, and at the very same time that it's hard, you've known the presence of God in a way that just can't be described. I hope you've had that experience, not because I wish suffering on you, but because I wish for you the sweet presence of God in the midst of it. You don't get that if it's not hard. If every day is a day at Disneyland, I mean, come on, how hard is that? No, suffering and comfort. And of course, this paragraph, Paul goes back and forth and saying, God has allowed us to suffer, the apostles. And he's comforted us. And we share that, he says to the, his readers. We share that, don't we? Because you're suffering. And you comfort us. And we comfort you. And we're, we're in this together. Uh, that's part of what church family is supposed to be, right? Well, it's always easy for all of us, right? Well, no, it isn't. So we, we share together, uh, as we read elsewhere, we bear one another's burdens, and in so, doing so, we, we fulfill the law of Christ. So this, this suffering of one, we share comfort, the presence of God. Now, verse 8. Oh, man, get a hold of this. Sometimes the darkness, I say on your study notes, Sometimes the darkness feels overwhelming even to the strongest of God's people. And I put that in quotes. So the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul, who, who is, we often think of in Acts 16 in the Philippian jail with Silas 
having been beaten, locked up. Remember this? Singing. And we say, well, Paul always sang when it was hard. Every time they beat him, they sang. Apparently, he got shipwrecked, he sang hymns. You know, they five times, 39 lashes. I'm sure he was singing the whole time. Uh, three times beaten with rods. I'm sure he was singing. The... Really? I, I think you give him too much credit. Oh, yes, he sang in the Philippian jail, but here he says, the Apostle Paul, we were utterly, so utterly burdened beyond our strength to where we despaired of life. We didn't, we, you know, we just didn't know if we were going to make it. It was beyond our strength. I said, Lord, I can't take anymore. And then more came. Anybody, anybody, don't raise your hands. Anybody been there? Lord, I thought you said you weren't going to send me more than I can handle. I can't handle any more of this. And then tomorrow shows up. The apostle Paul says, we were burdened beyond our strength. I didn't think I could go any further. And, and I, I'm saying, uncle, here, surrender. Man, we despaired of life itself. I just didn't know if we are going to make it. Oh, Lord, how are we going to do this? Wow. Super saints. Do you know of any? Anybody who's walked with Jesus so long that they're completely unaffected by life's difficulties? I don't think I know anybody like that. I know a lot of super saints, but typically they have tears in their eyes. Hmm. The Apostle Paul, I'm grateful for verse 8. It means that there's no burden on any of us to be so spiritually buff that we're not vulnerable to suffering and difficulty and tears and temptation like anybody else. Thank you, Paul. Now, chapter, uh, verse 9. All of this, he says, this sentence of death, this was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. We often rely on ourselves. I can take it. I can take it. I got this. We say, I got this. I got this. Do you? Do you? And then God says, well, let's, let's see about that. No, I, I don't want you to say, I've got this. I want you to say, it's Christ. It's Christ. I'm holding on to him. If it wasn't for him, I wouldn't make it. What am I, some superhero? There's superheroes belong in movies. No, God, Paul says, who raises the dead. Yes, I know the power of God. Does he always raise the dead? Not, not in this life and not till the resurrection. Yes, he raised Lazarus from the dead. Yes, he raised a young man from the dead. But as Paul was led out on the Appian Way, Second Timothy being his last book, taken out by a Roman soldier, and his history tells us his head separated from his body with a sword. What, did God fail that day? No, it was a different deliverance, wasn't it? It was death for a child of God. It was deliverance into the presence of God. So I put in your study notes, God's power and his promises and his presence are not overcome by the darkness. I reference there John 1, 5, uh, talking about Christ as the light of the world coming into the world, and the darkness did not overcome it. That's exactly right. The darkness does not overcome the light. Now, verse 10, then, verse 10. Sorry, verse 11. You also must help us by praying. You must help us by prayer. The ESV translates it almost like a command. You must. You must. Other Translations have it a little different. You are also you join us by uh, join us by helping us helping us as you pray. 
the, the, the significance of prayer. Paul says these things regularly. Even as he believes in the sovereign hand of God, he calls on God's people to pray. You're helping us as you pray. You're helping us. You're supporting us. You're lifting up our hands. You're standing with us. Don't minimize this. Don't ever say, well, what's the point of praying? No, it does matter. You pray. Sometimes people say things that I know they don't mean theologically, if they thought about it. They say things like, well, I know I can always pray, but I want to do something, you know, something else, something more. And I know what we mean by that. We do want to do other things to practically help someone. At the same time, there isn't anything greater you can do than to pray for them. I mean, believe that. Paul says, you, you are helping us. You must help us, and you are helping us as you pray. Thank you. Thank you for that. Now, the responding to God's word section, I, I just comment on both ends of this. God still keeps his promises, and I don't know whether you today find yourself more in the day, time, and the light, or more in the darkness. I don't know, but I mention here some of the promises of God, and I say to you, don't doubt these for a minute. These are just some. Some of the promises of God that you should read. You should have these roll off your tongue. These are promises God has made you, and he will keep them. No doubt, not a chance that he's going to fail. He'll keep those all the way to the end. And a reminder to you that God inhabits our seasons of darkness as well. Seasons that other people see. Sometimes we walk in seasons of darkness that no one sees but God alone. I know that that's true. And even in those times of darkness, his power, his promises, and his presence are not overcome by the darkness. It is right that this morning we would find our way at this moment to the communion table. Because if there is any way that you could say, how do I know that to be true? It's because you look at the cross where Jesus died, where he hung in darkness and took your sin upon his shoulders. It's interesting. The cross was a season of darkness for Jesus. You find that in Luke's gospel, uh, chapter 22, as the soldiers and all came to arrest Jesus, and he says to them, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. And again, John 13, as Judas takes the morsel and heads out, and John says so powerfully, and it was night. It was night. There was a darkness. There was a darkness into which Jesus walked with his eyes wide open. He walked into a season of darkness so that you don't have to walk into those alone. And he walked all the way to the cross there to bear your sin and mine in his body on the cross. So it's right that we come here today and say, Lord Jesus, wherever I'm walking today, you've made promises to me and I believe them. And the surety is Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection on the cross. The guarantee is right here. We're going to remember Christ today. I want to pray for us. And those who are going to serve us can come. I'll say a few comments. And then we'll receive communion together. I've given you on your study notes Romans 8 as a text that you might look at. I'm going to make a comment or two from that text as we receive communion. Pray with me, please. Father, this morning we thank you for your word. Thank you for speaking to us about times in the day when your promises are new and fresh and excite us, breathe air into us, into our lungs, buoy us along in the seasons of night times that we can't see so clearly. We can't see very far ahead of us. We wonder what the next day will hold and the darkness crowds in. And yet even in the darkness, your light, like a candle, shines. Lord, you've done that before as you spoke through your prophets during a season of darkness for Israel. And you do that today for us in our seasons of darkness. And for this, we thank you so deeply. Thank you for Jesus. 
his body broken for us on the cross, his blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And I pray that in these moments, our hearts would be turned to Christ with gratitude, humility, need. Lord, meet us where we're at today in these moments. In Jesus' name, amen.